The Sydney Festival podcast was recorded on the lands of the Gadigal people, whose sovereignty was never ceded. We pay our respects to their elders past, present, and those who are yet to emerge, and thank them for their wisdom. For 45 years, Sydney Festival has brought you bold performance, cultural celebrations, art, and big ideas to our sticky Sydney summers. I'm Wesley Enoch, the Artistic Director of Sydney Festival 2021. Our program this year is called Australian Made, and it's mostly about recovering after the year we've had. But it's also about connecting with our community, about reinvigorating our incredible local art scene, and to remind us of how resilient we really are. So let's get started. You're so kind. Welcome, everyone. It's so lovely to be in a room with this many people and uh, seeing all of your faces here tonight. Um, well, half of your faces, but you know what? I will take it anyway. Um, we begin with an acknowledgement that we, on tonight, meet on the sovereign lands of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, and together we pay our respects to elders past, present, and emerging for their sacred custodianship. Well, my name is Jan Fran. This is the fourth session of the journalist Jean A. Walkley's live series where we take a look at the work um, and also a little bit of the person of seven Walkley Award-winning journalists. Um, tonight is going to be a slightly different session to what some of you may be used to with journalist panels. We have a performer with us tonight. Uh, very fortunate to have Angeline Penrith here with us. She's going to bring some of the aspects of Kate's work to life um, and dramatise a little bit of what we talk about on this panel. We're also going to I guess get to know Kate a little bit more. So it is gonna be about her work and her stories, um, some of which I'm sure you're all familiar with, but it's also gonna be a little bit about her, what drives her, um, what keeps her up at night, some of her motivations as well. We kind of wanna hit that Venn diagram between the professional and the personal. Um, so that's really what we're hoping to achieve with tonight's session. This series is a collaboration between the Sydney Festival and the Walkley Foundation. I'm sure that most of you know that the Walkley Foundation supports great journalism and really does set the benchmark for excellence and for best practice with their well-known Walkley Awards. Kate McClymont, uh, I guess she doesn't need an introduction really, but, but I will give her one anyway. She is an investigative journalist with the Sydney Morning Herald. She's won eight Walkley Awards. Um, and actually, just earlier, we were debating out back whether she'd won seven Walkley Awards or eight Walkley Awards, and someone said, no, I think she's won seven, and someone else said, no, I think she's won eight, and I just thought for a second, wow, if you're at a point in your career <laughs> where people are debating whether or not you've won seven Walkley Awards or eight Walkley Awards, you know what, you're, you're doing quite well in your career. I think that sums up Kate McClymont. Um, she also won the Gold Walkley for her coverage of the Bulldogs' salary cap rorts. Last year, you might remember that she won a Walkley for print news reporting for her story on Dyson Hayden. It was called Dirty Dyson, a harasser on the High Court. Um, she won it in collaboration with her colleague at the Sydney Morning Herald, Jackie Malley, as well. It was a story that investigated claims against former High Court judge Dyson Hayden that he had sexually harassed six female associates during his tenure. Of their work, the Walkleys said, that their three-part presentation left no stone unturned in its, mastery, in its masterly prosecution of the facts, which unmasked a man who abused the power of his position and grossly affected the lives of others. They said this is journalism at its finest. So with that, please join me in welcoming Kate McClymont. How did you like that intro? I beg your pardon? How did you like that intro? I was going to oh, have you look, up here while I was reading it. Marvellous, marvellous. I'm a little bit sad that you didn't mention the highlight of my career, which was actually being the Australian Racing Writer of the Year. <laughs> <laughs> and, that was, um, and that was despite not having actually set foot on a racetrack, but there you go. <laughs> well, look, I didn't have that in my series of questions, but I will, I will add it to the list now. Um, I want to start with your investigation into Dyson Hayden. So we're going to start by talking a little bit about your work. Um, this was a massive story. There were several pieces that were written. I think it took years to come together. 
Where did the story start? What was the initial granule? Look, the story started um, back in late 2017. And of course, you'll remember that at that time, Harvey Weinstein was exposed in the US by the New York Times and the New Yorker magazine. And that opened the floodgates for women across the world to come forward and start telling their stories. And it was in some ways a perfect storm of uh, feeling that they could and also that major news organisations would take up the story. So in collaboration with the ABC, we did two investigations into, first of all, Don Burke and then Craig McLaughlin. Um, we were also looking at another person, but that got overtaken by the Daily Telegraph, and that did not end well. Um, and we shall and not name that person. No. Anyway, so um, the other, you know, there was numerous other uh, allegations that came forward against various men. And I might just say at this stage, you know, you get um, allegations from people but it is so hard to get these stories over the line. Mm. Like, what you have to do is find a pattern of behaviour. It's not enough for us to have one person come and say, a prominent man raped me. And while you have absolutely, um, you know, the, the belief that it did happen, every story that I write, I'm always thinking to myself, okay, if I'm in the witness box, defending this, basically you have to be able to prove that it's true. So with Dyson Hayden, um, a couple of um, names were given to me. And so somebody approached you and, and said, said, I've heard it might be worthwhile. So then um, I compiled a list of every um, person who had worked as a High Court associate with uh, Dyson Hayden, and they were all over the world. And that led to um, several of them, two of them said that they would go on the record. One woman um, who was overseas told the most extraordinary account of what had happened to her, but she said, I don't ever want it to be public, I don't want it to be used without attribution, I'm just telling you to know what you're dealing with, but nothing that I have said you can ever use, mm. and we never did. But it's one of those things that when you're looking at doing a story on you know, one of the giants of the legal profession, you know, our lawyers just said, look, I just don't think it's quite enough. How are we going to prove these things? And then, of course, two years later, along came Chief Justice Susan Kiefel. And, and tell us why that well, was of it was, significance so to you. So, after the women had spoken to us and we said, look, um, we've got enough, but we're just not, not quite over the line, they then put in a legal complaint to the High Court itself, basically a workplace harassment complaint. So, the High Court then hired an independent investigator and she did a lengthy investigation um, in which uh, former Justice Dyson Hayden was invited to participate and to comment on. He declined both of those offers. Anyway, at the end of that, um, the investigator found that the allegations were upheld. And it was then that um, Susan Kiefel put out a statement saying that it's with you know, great shame, basically, that I... Um, have found Dyson Hayden did in fact harass um, a number of associates in his care. And that, you know, this is the Chief Justice of the High Court of Australia. Our lawyers basically said, yes, yeah. <laughs> you, can, you can go for it now. But in the meantime, we'd also found... Um, before, before we get to that, which we will, we've actually got Angeline... Penrith here with us this evening, who is going to remind us, I think, so a very timely reminder of exactly what the Chief Justice of the High Court, Susan Kiefel AC, said. The High Court was advised last year 
of allegations of sexual harassment against a former justice. And we immediately acted to commission an independent investigation. The investigation, conducted by Dr. Vivian Thorne AM, took some months to complete. We received Dr. Thorne's report and have provided it to the six complainants and to the justice in question. The investigation found that six former court staff members who were judges' associates were harassed by the former justice. The findings are of extreme concern to me, my fellow justices, our chief executive and the staff of the court. We're ashamed that this could have happened at the High Court of Australia. We have made a sincere apology to the six women whose complaints were borne out. We know it would have been difficult to come forward. Their accounts of their experiences at the time have been believed. I have appreciated the opportunity to talk with a number of the women about their experiences and to apologise to them in person. I have also valued their insight and suggestions for change that they have shared with the court. The court has not spoken publicly about the investigation to this point. A number of the women requested confidentiality. The court now confirms that the subject of the investigation was the Honourable Dyson Hayden ACQC. We ask that the media respect the privacies of the complainants. We have moved to do all we can to make sure that the experiences of these women will not be repeated. There is no place for sexual harassment in any workplace. We have strengthened our policies and training to make clear the importance of a respectful workplace at the court. We have made sure that there is both support and confidential avenues for complaints if anything like this were to happen again. That's a pretty powerful statement. Oh, look, it was. And I think once our lawyers knew that that statement was coming. But I, what I was going to say was that, meanwhile, we had broadened our um, investigation. And in fact, two um, senior female members of the profession, one a senior counsel, the other a judge, both um, talked of incidences where they had been harassed by Dyson Hayden. And one of the, the, the women, the judge, said that they were sitting at dinner and he actually put his hand between her legs at a public dinner. And she said it constituted, um, you know, possibly a criminal offence. But it was interesting because she said she didn't want to go on the record because there is still the perception in the legal profession that women will be seen as whingers or complainers and because she was a judge, she was concerned that should she ever sit on a sexual assault case, that male judges would ask her to excuse herself. So I just thought that was really interesting. And um, we had a, a fantastic reaction from younger men and women mm. in the profession. And I had um, dinner a couple of nights later with a friend who her friend had said to her, um, you know, all these young women complaining about sexual harassment in my day, we just put up with it. Anyway, this woman said, you're not going to believe it. Her daughter rang her up. Her daughter, who's a lawyer, said, I am one of the people who suffered at the hands of Dyson Hayden. So this woman was just... And I, I think it's, it's interesting that generational mm. um, shift in mm. perceptions of what is acceptable and what is not. And do you attribute that, I guess, in some part to the Me Too movement? I mean, do you see your work sitting within that context? And do you think that the stories that you've published in the last few years could have or would have happened in the same way? Had Me Too not happened in 2017? I don't think that they would have happened without that movement. I really don't. And 
I just think too it's given women the feeling that now's the time to talk about these things and to hold people to account because there's always that risk, um, especially if it's just you by yourself, that you will be seen in the workplace as, you know, a troublemaker, you know, you're... It's, it's, it's hard and I, I think just talking to people, one thing that I think is changing is that human resources in big organisations are now taking these things very seriously and also dealing with strategies because not everyone wants to go to the media or to make it public in their work. They just want it to stop. Mm, mm. So, and I think that's an important thing that um, pathways are found for such behaviour to be pulled up before it gets any further or damages people's careers. Mm. How often do you worry about getting sued? Oh, <laughs> God. oh look, it's... Is it daily oh, or is it weekly? No, uh, not weekly, but almost. Mm. Um, and I, I think that, that that's completely the bane of my existence. I'd really rather get a death threat than a lawsuit. <laughs> I'm sorry, I would. <laughs> And you've had those too, so you would true, know which true. one you prefer. Yeah. True. Why do you say that? Well, it's it's just that the lawsuits take up so much time. No, stop laughing. It's terrible. I was um, I was sued by ninety-six-year-old Morgan Ryan, that my little mate from the Lionel Murphy affair like 40 years ago, he was 96 and was claiming I had ruined his business life. And you just think, seriously? And then I had, I had a complaint this week from somebody who said that they were going to sue for referring to the fact they'd been in jail for cocaine dealing. And you think, sorry, but you were. <laughs> so, and I was nuts. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't quite stand up when it's true, does it? No, but the, the other thing is that in a lot of the long stories that you do, you spend so much time worrying about the major players in the story, and often you'll get a legal threat from somebody who's mentioned once in a paragraph. I tend now to get people um, threatening to sue if they're in the same paragraph as Eddie Obeid, because they say... <laughs> I did. I got a lawsuit from somebody saying, you know, you're suggesting that I know Eddie O.B. That's an insult and damaging to my reputation. It's a syllable offence. I don't want to see my name in print next to his name Correct. at all. Exactly. Yeah. There are other ways, though, to, I guess, um, shore up your case should it go to court other than having people speak on the record, which is one way to do it. But... With the Charlie um, Teo story that you reported on, you actually, there was another way in which you were able to say. Yes. So, for those of you who um, might have missed this story, um, it was a story about um, neurosurgeon Charlie Teo. And the story made clear that um, as a surgeon, he was absolutely fantastic and very skilled but his colleagues um, brought into question his judgments and also the fact that he's still fundraising, I mean, getting people to pay $100,000 for an operation in which often their chances or their child's chance of survival are really not so great. Anyway, um, when I did this story, I got a legal letter saying that... Um, Charlie Teo was going to sue. So what I had done prior to publication, I could not get a single neurosurgeon, and I spoke to 11, I couldn't get one of them to go on the record because of the public backlash that uh, another colleague who was a professor of urology, not even a neurosurgeon, got for daring to raise any questions about um, Dr. Teo. Anyway, so what I did was I said to these people, all right, um, if you're not going to go on the record, I need to know if I am sued, you will get in that witness box and you will give evidence. And every single one of them said that they would. So I 
you know, we sent wow. off a letter to um, Dr. Teo just saying that um, we did have people who were prepared to give evidence should he consider um, going down that path. So but he, but even, I, I found even more wacky than the legal threat was the call, not just one, two calls I got from Mick Gatto's associates. <laughs> now, for any of you who don't know, Mick Gatto is quite a scary underworld person from Melbourne. So, as I'm doing this story, you know, I sent off questions which you have to do to the person, and I don't get a reply from Charlie Teo. First of all, I get a call from um, one of my associates, who <laughs> said, um, are you doing a story on, um, on the good doc? And I said, what are you talking about? And he said, well, he said, oh, Charlie Teo. And I said, how do you know that I'm doing a story on Charlie Teo? This person's an underworld debt collector, I might add. I said, how do you know I'm doing a story on Charlie Teo? And he said, oh, mate, mate, I, I just heard. So I thought, oh, that's, that's a bit weird. Then about 20 minutes later, I get a call from another underworld figure who said, I need to meet you to talk about Charlie Teo. And I said, well, how do you know? Hang on a second. Is this a, is this a private number that calls you? Like, are you at home? Are you at work? No, do you also, answer? So the, the second one has been quite a good sort of source over the years. And, Mick um, Gatto. It, no, no, it's not Mick Gatto, but oh. every time I meet him, he's got about five phones, and they're all those old Nokia ones. And I said, why have you got all those old phones? And um, he said, oh, because they've got no ability for police to trace them. But sadly, um, I think he has been recently done for money laundering. But anyway, so back to... So I go to meet this guy, and then he starts saying to me... Um, but how can you write in this story about Mick Gatto operating on the wrong side of someone's brain in Arkansas? How can you possibly write that? I said, how do you know I'm writing that? And he said, oh, well, um, he said, Mick told me that's what you'd say. And I said, Mick who? I said, oh, you're kidding, Mick Gatto. Because I knew that Charlie Teo had been inviting Mick Gatto to his fundraisers, and yes, Mick Gatto had asked people just to make inquiries on his friend's behalf about the story I was doing. Right. And you think, oh, so I put it in the story. I just thought, you know, I'm not going to be bullied by having, you know, Gatto associates call up. You know, not that they, they didn't threaten me in any way. They I mean, didn't. the call in and of itself is, you know, uh, to yeah. some degree menacing. It's not... It's not nice to know that there's perhaps an underworld figure that's checking up on the stories that you're doing oh, about people that he well, says. Are you, are you scared? I well, mean, it's, it's funny you? you should say that because I got a call from an underworld, uh, underworld um, an, a former undercover officer this week wanting um, to see if I could meet up with him. He wanted to talk to me about his position. I said, oh, why me? And he said, oh, I've heard your voices often enough on, um, on phone intercepts. He thought I sounded rather nice. <laughs> so, I know, you, you think, oh... I mean, but does... I, genuinely, does this weigh on you? You know, being intercepted by the police or having them listen into your conversations, um, certain underworld well, figures I don't, knowing I the don't, stories that you're doing? I don't think that my phones are being intercepted. It's probably the people that I'm talking to, their phones are being intercepted. So. OK. Still worrying, I'd say, to some extent. Um, what, what does worry you? What does scare you? Um, it's one of those things that when you are about to publish a big story, you, you can't sleep, you feel sick. You just think, have I got everything right? Have I got everything? Is every T, you know, crossed? Is every I dotted? Just because the stakes are, you know, so unbelievably high and in fact I remember um, one story I did and this was on um, Michael Williamson who was the former head of the health services union and I had been given certain information that um, Michael Williamson, in fact the person who rang me was a fellow parent of Michael Williamson's from his school and the parent rang up and said 
you might want to have a look at this Michael Williamson bloke. And I said, I've got no idea who you're talking about. And he said, he's the head of the health services union and he's the federal president of the Labor Party. I said, oh, okay. And I said, why? And he said, well, he's got five kids at private school. He and his wife drive top-of-the-line Mercedes-Benz. They travel first class, and they always outbid us at the school charity auction. <laughs> <laughs> so that was his beef, <laughs> was that Michael Williamson was outbidding other parents. Anyway, oh, wow. so I just thought, you know, that is as good a reason as any to have a look at a story. So, I mean, you must get so many of these as well. I know, but there are a lot of nutters. Like, there really are. Um, anyway, so I, I start looking at Michael Williamson. I think it probably took maybe an hour to find that he, um, the union architect had done his property developments, that his computer company was receiving a million dollars in fees a year that had not been disclosed in the annual accounts. And so I thought, okay, this is actually worth looking at. Anyway, so as my investigation progressed, I got information that Michael Williamson and Craig Thompson, who by then was an MP, had been given American Express cards of the union's printer and the union's printer was getting like 10 times the going rate for printing the, the newsletter. So it looked like the American Express cards were just a payment for, you know, getting the contract to do. Right. Anyway, so, so the story is, so um, I get somebody um, at American Express in the fraud department to go and have a look for me, and he gets back to me and said, yep, They've definitely, got, they've definitely got cards. And I said, can you get any documents for me? And he said, no, I can't do that. But they're both recorded here as the printer's brother-in-laws. I thought, oh. Anyway, so I go to, to, my, um, go to my bosses and I say, I've got this fantastic story. You know, they've got these American Express cards, which you know, can constitute the criminal offence of receiving a secret commission. And they said, oh, you know, what documents have you got? And I go, absolutely nothing. And they said, hold on, you're wanting to write this story and you haven't got a piece of paper. And I said, look, I've got somebody who's looked, you're going to have to trust me on this. And I remember one of the editors saying, oh my God, this is a $2 million defamation suit in the waiting. <laughs> and I just think, oh, and so he'd already threatened to sue me. This is Michael Williamson when I put the questions to him, but we ran the story. So he ended up in jail. It right. wasn't one million. The police found possibly he had misappropriated 20 million. Wow. How does that phone call to Michael Williamson go? Oh, I hate doing those. Yeah, really... how does it, I mean, what's, do you have a template case? No, well, it, it's funny because, um, like, I've, it's gotten stage now where when I ring people up and say it's Kate McClymont, I can hear them go, <laughs> So. If I actually want to get, if I want people to help me and to get information, I have to say really quickly, it's Kate McClymont here and I'm hoping you may be able to help me before they've died of, you know, complete terror. Yeah. But um, most people, um, you know, I put in some calls today for a story I'm doing tomorrow on um, one of the Ibrahim family's dentist who managed to get an $8 million spotter's fee for a property. Um, and he didn't return my calls, sadly. Right. No. Okay. And I, I rang his... Well, I hope Nick uh, Gatto doesn't call you again. Just... <laughs> oh, I hope not. I rang his um, cosmetic dental surgery in Miranda, and um, I said, oh, it's Kate McClymont from the Herald here. Yes. <laughs> yes. Anyway, but they didn't get back to me. Yeah. Did you always want to be a journalist? No. What did you want to be? Oh, look, I didn't really know. Um, I did, I started doing arts law at Sydney University and I did an honours year in English literature and I deferred from my last two years of law, which I'm now incredibly grateful for because I might have ended up 
as a lawyer. <laughs> and I think that would be a very bad thing. No, look, I, it was one of those things that it was just completely serendipitous that I met somebody at a party who had got a cadetship at the Herald. And I just thought, oh, that's something that I would love to do. So when the next year came round, I had, um, you know, picked her brains. And, but the funny thing is, when I went for the interview, um, Chris Anderson and Eric Beecher, who were the um, editor-in-chief and the editor of the Herald at the time, were far more interesting in my university side career, which was a busker at King's Cross, <laughs> which was questions answered 40 cents, arguments 50 cents, and verbal abuse a dollar. <laughs> oh, that's how you were, that's the, how you were making the money. Yes, oh. I used to make seventeen dollars an hour, which was Burnley quite abusing good. people. Yeah, that was, and that was so many years ago. See, that <laughs> I didn't know. Um, you've had death threats. You've had to move out of your home. Why do you do what you do? What keeps you doing the work that you do in the face of all of this stuff? Look. Until you get the um, lawsuit, um, it is just the most fabulous job. Just for instance, um, there's a case that I'm doing at the moment, Melissa Caddick, who's the Dover Heights woman that's disappeared with, you know, bag loads of money, allegedly. So the thing is, you start doing these stories and you yourself don't know what the outcome is. It's like being in the middle of an engrossing story, but the outcome is yet to reveal itself to you as well. And you think, I actually get paid to do this. And then I get a lawsuit and I think, why am I doing this? <laughs> it's, it's not worth it. And has there ever been a moment where you've come close to leaving or changing careers or quitting? No. Never? No, I think the lowest point of my career was in the wake of... Um, the um, Eddie Obede, and Eddie Obede is the former Labor minister who's currently facing his second criminal trial for corruption. He sued my colleague Anne Davies and I for, God forbid, suggesting he was corrupt. And he was successful. And I remember that was back in 2006, and I just remember thinking people will think I'm just the most useless journalist. Um, mm. I just felt ashamed and embarrassed and like a failure. And I thought, and I, the worst thing about this is that I will never be able to write about Eddie Obede ever again. And that lasted about six months. <laughs> and then I just thought, oh, damn it. I just have to get, um, I have to get back. And I remember, when Eddie Obede um, went to jail, which I think now was at the end of either 2016 or 2017, I can remember bursting into tears, like just thinking it's been such a hard... <laughs> See, even now I get teary thinking about such... It took such a toll on me and my family and the, the paper just, you know, backed Anne Davies and I every step of the way and it was mm. worthwhile. Mm. Sorry. <laughs> do, do you feel proud in moments like this, though, where you can look back at your body of work? I don't know. I sort of... Um, I just always think of all the things that are waiting around the corner, all those investigations on my desk, my very messy desk piled with documents and files. That, and I often find treasures at the bottom of them. When I'm doing a momentary clean-up, I find, oh, my God, I'd forgotten about that story. <laughs> that's very, it's a very good one. Tell us a little bit about your love of books and reading and literature. Oh, look, uh, when you were saying what... I would have liked to have done. I mean, the truth is I would have loved to have been a novelist. And I, I think you get to accept what your strengths and weaknesses are. And, you know, I read the work of, you know, Helen Garner, Tim Winton, 
Um, you know, there's other um, Australian journalists I love. Even every couple of years, I reread Jane Austen, um, Pride and Prejudice, and George Eliot's Middlemarch. And it just makes you realise how completely incompetent you are. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's just, you know, that joy of reading, you know, like really beautifully written works. And so I, I still think that that's one of the, the joys of my life is, um, is reading. Yeah. Well, we've got Angeline back on stage with us. She's going to read um, one of the stories from an author that you love and oh. admire. Um, Anton Chekhov. Chekhov. I love right. his short stories. Yeah, and this is um, his story, Ward Number Six. Some 12 or 15 years ago, an official called Gromov, a highly respectable and prosperous person, was living in his own house in the principal street of the town. He had two sons, Sergei and Ivan. When Sergei was a student in his fourth year, he was taken ill with a galloping consumption and died. And his death was, as it were, the first of a whole series of calamities which suddenly showered on the Gromov family. Within a week of Sergei's funeral, the old father was put on trial for fraud and misappropriation, and he died of typhoid in the prison hospital soon afterwards. The house, with all their belongings, was sold by auction, and Ivan Dmitrich and his mother were left entirely without means. One autumn morning, Ivan Dmitrich, turning up the collar of his greatcoat and splashing through the mud, made his way by side streets and back lanes to see some artisan and to collect some payment that was owing. He was in a gloomy mood, as he always was in the morning. In one of the side streets, he was met by two convicts in fetters and four soldiers with rifles in charge of them. Ivan Dmitrich had very often met convicts before, and they had always excited feelings of compassion and discomfort in him. But now, this meeting made a peculiar, strange impression on him. It suddenly seemed to him, for some reason, that he too might be put into fetters and led through, a, through the mud to a prison like that. Was it not easy to commit a crime by accident, unconsciously? And was it not false witness always possible, and indeed a miscarriage of justice. It was not without good reason that the age-long experience of the simple people teaches that beggary and prisons are ills none can be safe from. A judicial mistake is very possible as legal proceedings are conducted nowadays, and there is nothing to be wondered at in it. People who have an official, professional relation to other men suffering, for instance, judges, police officers, doctors, in course of time, through habit, grow so callous that they cannot, even if they wish it, take any but a formal attitude to their clients. In this respect, they are no different from the peasants who slaughter the sheep and calves in the backyard and does not notice the blood. you might have liked to be a novelist. Um, why do you think you didn't end up one? I'm not good enough. <laughs> what no, makes you it's say that, that's, that No, it's that thing, like, you know where your strengths are. And um, I just so admire, you know, those like Anton Chekhov and, oh, and, you know, so many fabulous Australian writers. It's just that beautiful, light lyrical touch, it, I sort of think I'm always dealing with such nasty, <laughs> no, no, not always nasty people, but I, I must say that there's one thing that I always look for in stories is just that moment of humour, because so many people that I write about are just such incredible idiots <laughs> who, you know, do and say the most stupid things. Yeah. <laughs> and I love that. <laughs> I, mean, I do, I do, I love it. I, I know, I've, I've heard you said in the past that, uh, that sometimes you sort of have to save people from themselves a little bit. When they talk to you, they say all of this stuff and perhaps they're not too media savvy and you have to sort of sit down and explain, look, this story might not be as 
nice as what you think it might be. How do you do that? Oh, look, it's, it's one of those things where part of being a journalist, I think, is also being part psychologist. For instance, when you ring people up, you have to make instantaneous decisions on how to keep them on the phone. Are you, you know, light and breezy? Do you get straight to the point? Um, you're just trying to work your way through those things. And I think that often, you know, people will talk to you and tell you things. And I'm not talking about people who may have committed criminal offences, they can say as much as they like. But I'm talking about people who are trying to help you or who are victims. Sometimes it's important to say to them um, either the story might not be as favourable about yourself as you think because mm. there are two sides to every story. And also sometimes you say to people, look, I think it might be better if we leave what you have just said about that to one side. You know, it might affect your children or it might, you know, not everyone has to be, um, oh, I don't know. It's, I don't mean taken advantage of, but I think in the media we do have an ethical obligation to try to <laughs> protect some people from themselves. Yeah. How would, um, how would you describe yourself? Like, if you had to write your Tinder profile, say, how would you do it? What would you write? What's going in there? What are your characteristics? Oh, oh that's shocking. Um, Tinder is shocking, yes. <laughs> um, I don't know. I, um, oh, oh, no, I don't know. Um, look, I, the thing that I like most in other people is the ability to laugh, and also to laugh at yourself. My Which children, I feel like you have both of those. Oh, no, oh, look. I do. My children are always laughing at me and my complete incompetence when it comes to digital matters. Um, only recently, I dropped my phone while it was ringing five stories down onto a concrete platform and it was still ringing when it hit the bottom, <laughs> which I thought was a miracle. But I did also, you just pick it up and go, hello, Kate McClough? No, I had to run all the way down to get it. And then I also, I just still don't know how I do this, but when you accidentally send somebody a pin which says Kate McClymont's location is, and I said that to the head of the Hells Angels. <laughs> Claremont's location is. And then when I actually finally did get uh, onto him, he had stood me up. And I said, oh, why did you stand me up? And he sent me this text message saying, LOL, you are too scary. <laughs> I did say to somebody in the office, why is he saying lots of love? And they said, oh, God, <laughs> it's laugh out loud, you idiot. <laughs> but I mean, surely you, you must think that you do have some characteristics that allow you to do the work that you do. So, I mean, in the work that you do, what kind of characteristics would you employ? Sorry, what kind of... So, I'm trying to ask you this question like it's a professional question, but really, I just want to know all about you. Well, um, look, I don't know. I must say that I am... Um, I do get rather single-minded when I'm, when I'm following a trail. Mm. And I think one of my favourite, favourite parts of my job is doing ASIC company searches. It honestly must be like anyone who's got an addiction to poker machines because I'm just waiting for it to pop up and I go, oh my God, there's so-and-so in business with so-and-so who lives at this address, which is the accountant in that. And I love a timeline. I like, yes. <laughs> I like doing a timeline because it's amazing you think, Oh my God, on the same day that that money went in there, that person was setting up an account here. So I'm just imagining you in front of a cork board, maybe smoking a cigarette with all these pictures with the red twine in between them trying to draw oh, the have, dots. I Is have, that what you look like? Is that an I, accurate Actually, picture? I can remember um, um, Jacqueline Magne and I did that once. We took over a corner of the room and we did it on the floor and no one was allowed to walk on our map 
that had, <laughs> you know, company here, this here, that it was such fun. Yeah. Who do, who do you turn to for advice, um, for counsel? Just when you feel like perhaps you're in a low moment in your life, who are the people that you turn to? Look, um, often my friends who aren't journalists, um, I might talk to them about certain things because they're always a good shoulder to cry on. But in the office, um, I will often talk to um, Lisa Davies, the editor, or Michael Evans, the investigations editor, all the lawyers who I seem to be on the phone to constantly. No, but just to say... Um, are they on your I, speed dial? Yes. <laughs> Literally, they are? Yes. Yeah. yes. I used to know Richard Coleman's extension off by heart. <laughs> um, no, but it's just, it's good to discuss ethical dilemmas. You know, do you think it's fair if we do this or do you think we should leave out something? And it's just good to talk to other people um, just as a sounding board because sometimes... Um, investigations are a bit lonely. Mm. Not lonely, but I love working um, on stories with somebody else. And as you mentioned, I worked on the Dyson Hayden story with um, Jackie Maley. And it's really nice to be able to say, guess what? Mm. Or, um, you know, just talk about things with people and do something with somebody else is, I find, really enjoyable. Do you feel like having a sense of humour or, or being able to perhaps not take yourself too seriously, do you think that that's a real asset in, in the work that you do? Look, I think it possibly is. And also, um, it's, I just think it's important to always treat people with respect, even if they are about to go to jail <laughs> for something. And in fact, it's amazing how many people come back to you even after you have written about them. I once had this um, man ring up and he'd been in jail for 11 years and he said, could he meet me for a cup of coffee? And I said, oh yes, come to our office canteen. Because <laughs> I thought, that's got, um, that, that's got, uh, you know, uh, CCTV. CCTV footage. Anyway, so um, he said, you know what, he said, um, it wasn't that great for me that you mentioned that I was possibly New South Wales' wealthiest prisoner since he'd smuggled an estimated, you know, $30 million of cocaine each year for X amount of years. But anyway, he wanted my help with um, something that he was looking at. And he was, he said, you know, the problem for people like me is that I'm a criminal and all my friends are criminals. And he said, and I've got a lot of money in the Philippines. But, you know, he said, it's cheaper to have me killed than for my criminal mates to give it back. So that's where I'm going. And he was killed. He was in a, killed in a hit-and-run accident in Thailand. Oh. So, and I never quite knew whether that was an accident or whether... It was real, but um, anyway, he'd said that he'd appreciated that I'd been fair in my story on him. So, and it's funny, people ring you up from jail saying, listen, love, I know you've written about me, but um, I hear you're not a bad bird to deal with. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, I get, um, I used to get um, Christmas cards from somebody who was in jail for um, kidnapping somebody who ended up in bits and pieces in a box out to sea somewhere. Oh, God. But, you know, they, I don't know, they contact you and yeah. still want to tell you their story. Well, speaking of all of the things that have been said to and about Kate McClymont, we're going to bring Angeline back because I think she's got a bit of a special treat to round us off this evening. Who? Kathy Old Climat. <laughs> all right, right. Kate McClymont. Oh, yeah, she's not bad. Yeah, yeah, taking down a few in interesting public figures. Knocked them down a peg or two. Uh, salted their seahorse, as we say. <laughs> Mostly Labor politicians, I'm just saying. I reckon she could have gone after the Liberal Party a bit more, you know. You've brought down Labor ministers, Kate. Why don't you keep your eye on some liberal sparrows, huh? huh? 
Subject them to a bit of spray and pray occasionally, girl, eh? <laughs> yeah, I'm not saying she's biased, you know. I'm just saying. I enjoy her stories, but they're uh, few and far between. It takes uh, her a long time to get to the point. And um, she's pretty fussy with the proven things. Um, I mean, you could see someone is dodgy just by looking at them, can't you? You know someone's a dirty lamb chop as quick as that. But by the time trusty old Kate gets around to proving they are, I mean, it's all over by the shouting. <laughs> she needs to liven her act up a bit. She needs to investigate the right people. I mean, I think Eddie Obede went a bit too far when he said under that, under what's that thing called? Oh yeah, parliamentary privilege. He said, uh, my climate, has been mixing with scum for so long, she no longer knows who's good and who is bad, who is real and what is made up. She has become the journalistic equivalent of a gun mole, with glittering association with the not so well to do, <laughs> which even I think is a bit much, but uh, I'll take your point. She needs to just check in on everyone who has an account in the Virgin Islands. How is she supposed to access that? Well, I don't know. Fly over there and ask them? <laughs> she seems pretty savvy. What, what do I know? She can probably see through walls, you know? She probably has a tape recorder on 24-7. I mean, what's to stop her from planting some bugs in, in rich people's homes? Huh? Yeah, but who cares about the law if you're right? You know, you just... Just check on the, them tax records of anyone who lives past the top of Oxford Street and bring them down as well. And bottom line, she doesn't do enough. <laughs> there are a ton of white-collar crims still out there, and what's she doing? Having a glass of Chardonnay at the Walkley Awards? <laughs> no. Eight Walkleys are still single digits. <laughs> when she gets in the double digits, she may have a shot at my respect, but um, until then, Pull your finger out, Kate, you slacker. <laughs> that was very good. Oh, so much stuff just said about you out there in the ether. Do you care? Not really. About none of it? Does anything get to you? Look, if, if you let any of that get to you, well, you know, you don't go into journalism to, um, you know, make lots of friends with the people that you write about. So I just think if, if it was anyone that I respected saying mm. things about you, that you take, like, really seriously. But when it's people you don't know, who cares? It's a probably good attitude to have. It's why you've lasted so long in your <laughs> career and you're so good at it. Do you think it's harder now for journalists to do the type of work that you do? Do you think that there's a, a difference in doing this work in 2021? Look, some bits of it are harder and some bits of it are easier. I can remember when I first started out, your major investigative tool was for a phone book. That, you, that was the only way you could find people's phone numbers, where they lived. Yeah, wow. Well. And now I think all the things that you can find out on the internet. But having said that, um, people, especially um, police, where they used to tell you things before and now worried about their calls being traced, getting into trouble for talking out of school. So getting that kind of information has become so much harder. Mm. And also just, I guess, the feedback of platforms like Twitter and Facebook and social media, it's much more immediate um, and I find increasingly vitriolic in a way that sort of um, throws me sometimes. And I re remember we had a conversation actually last week and we were talking about Twitter and I said, I hate it. And you said, I love it. Why do you love it? I, I love it because it's an instantaneous glimpse into the wider world. And it also depends on who you follow on Twitter. I was so sad when Mark Colvin died for many reasons. But one of the main ones was that he was on kidney dialysis 
three days a week. And during that time, he would read so widely and would attach the articles to Twitter. So there are so many things that have been brought to my attention um, in overseas publications that I would never have read if somebody else hadn't said, hey, this is really interesting. And I also find, um, I remember once, <coughs> excuse me, um, I was at an ICAC hearing and they had been trying to find a certain witness and they said, I'm, your honour, I'm very sad, but we can't. So I went on Twitter and said, if anyone knows uh, this person who is now married and lives in Canada but used to be a mining engineer, five minutes and no. the, the person was found. So it is a tool. Um, I, I just think it is a, 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 a helpful tool if you look at it that way. But also, mm. I don't try to engage in warfare with other people or... And I tend not to get trolled very much because you sort of think you just let your work speak for itself. But anyway, I just think it's really interesting. Mm. I just get so mad because everyone is wrong <laughs> on there. And I just stew in my own, you know, rage at home. I think I just need to get better at working that out, and you seem to have mastered it so brilliantly. Um, i got to ask you, because this series is called The Journalist Gene, and we often talk about a nose for news, you know? Pe people, either you have it or you don't have it, but sometimes it's just so hard to actually qualify what that is. What do you think the journalist gene is, and do you have it? I think the journalist gene is a very nice way of describing an insatiable sticky beak. <laughs> so, I do think I have a nose for trouble, but I also, I'm just fascinated by how things work and also how the underlying sort of, you know, the, the underlying power in our cities work. Like, I just think people have no idea of just the corruption amongst um, local councils, developers, their accountants, their lawyers. I just think that that's a really fascinating world that you, you know, somebody in my profession gets to look into and it's pretty mm. bloody murky. Mm. If I could get you to look back at your very stellar career, What's, your, what's been your proudest moment? Oh, I, I definitely think when the aforesaid Eddie Obeid went to jail and before I got all <laughs> quivery, then, you know, they had me followed, they tried to blackmail me, they set up a website which featured me with tape across my mouth and, um, you know, just posted all kinds of things on it. And in fact, when I, due to my technological incompetence, didn't even know it was up on the website, they sent a photo of it to me to the office. I took it to the police. They did fingerprint checks, and sure enough, uh, an associate of the OBEDS, who'd obviously had a run-in with the police in the past, had their fingerprints on it. And all the police did was say, please don't do that again, because they hadn't threatened to kill me. Mm there was nothing that they could do other than say, don't do this. So I sort of feel it's just been an ongoing, um, you know, drama with the Obeds and their trial will resume on the 1st of February and I'll be back in the front row. <laughs> Mate. <laughs> I mean, I just think that that's just the perfect note to end on. Um, I thank you so much for your time. It's been really and enlightening chatting to you. Thanks for your wonderful questions. Oh, you're so welcome. Except for that Tinder. Oh, God. <laughs> I knew that kind of razz you up. I thought, should I ask the Tinder question? I'm going to ask the Tinder question. <laughs> Walkley's Live, the journalist Jean is presented by Sydney Festival in partnership with the Walkley Awards for Excellence in Journalism. Thanks for listening. For more information on Sydney Festival, 
head to sydneyfestival.org.au and be sure to subscribe to the Sydney Festival channel wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you.